Hello, this is Noah Gibbs, and this is Computer Science, Just the Useful Bits. Uh, I'm here with Ernesto Tagwerker, and he's the founder of Ombu Labs. Uh, they have a service, FastRuby.io, which is a Rails upgrade service. He's a contributor to open source, a conference speaker. He's done a lot of excellent things. Uh, Ernesto, good to have you here. How are you doing today? Hey, you know, I'm doing really good today, and um, I'm happy to be here to talk to you about uh, computer science and, and all that jazz. Excellent. Tell me and the people listening, how did you learn to do this? How did you learn to develop software? Do you have, do we have time for that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we may have to, we may have to skim a little bit. I understand. <laughs> okay. So I'll give you the TLDR version of it. Um, I just love to play with computers and I thought that I could learn to play with computers for a living and to get paid to play with computers. And then uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to start studying information systems engineering in uh, my home country of Argentina. And so, yeah, I decided to attend university and study a five-year program. And yeah, it turns out that that particular program was not very comp sci heavy. So I didn't learn a lot of programming there. I learned the basics and definitely a lot of theory there. Uh, but then I believe that I learned how to work with uh, web applications and applications in general in at my job. You know, uh, I, I would find myself self-teaching myself every week. You know, like I, I didn't know anything about web. So I was like, okay, I need to like read up on this and I need to go and find all the information that I can. Um, so... I guess the TLDR version is that I learned the basics at school, but I learned how to code at work and from a lot of coaches and mentors over the years. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and it sounds like, you know, a lot of the theory was from university, but the more practical part on the job. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. The, um, there were definitely some very important parts at school, like, uh, you know, object-oriented programming, object-oriented design, um, you know, the theory of uh, logic and, and stuff like that, how uh, design patterns. Um, one of the things about my degree is that if you wanted to learn about design patterns and object-oriented programming, actually had to take an elective class it wasn't part of like the main curricula and I, I learned the basics there and then I went and un implemented all these ideas in in my work in, in some school projects as well but mainly at work cool uh, how, how long ago was this roughly oh wow I'm gonna uh, sound you don't have to answer pretty old to. yeah <laughs> um, I studied from 2001 to 2006. I, it was a five-year program. I, it took me six years to finish it. Um, part of that was not picking the right teams to work in, to work with for school projects. Uh, I learned a tough lesson there where it was like, if you're going to work on an epic distributed system with a team of people you really want that team of people to pull their own weight and first time around i flunk flunked a class uh, because we were six people in the team and the 
just two of us ended up coding in C, this distributed system. Um, but anyway, it was like six years of formal education. Uh, by year three, I started working full-time and stu studying full-time. And I feel like that definitely made a, a positive impact in my career because I went from I don't know if you know, like in Argentina, I went to this school called the Universidad Tecnológica Nacional. So this is a national technology university, uh, you know, free public education, very competitive, very hard. Uh, but the university itself had two shifts. You had the morning shift and the night shift. So when I started working full time, I was like, I can't go to the morning shift anymore. And I started doing the night shift at school. And the people there were just like laser focused, you know, like there was no messing around, no, you know, playing around. It was like, dude, I just got from work. <laughs> I'm starting to study now. So we, we, we don't have time for any BS. Uh, so that made a really positive impact. And I was like, well, everybody here in the night shift is both working full time and studying full time. And they were all very focused. And the group of people that I started hanging out with then was like a different kind of people that was like more focused and more uh, goal oriented. Um, and I gotta say studying and working full time was great for applying what I was learning at school at work. Sometimes, you know, like over-engineering things to apply a design pattern. I, I'm guilty of that. I admit it, like everybody, I think. But uh, yeah. yeah, just to be able to apply things at work that I was learning at school was uh, great. Yeah, well, like you say, everybody's guilty of it. And I feel like a lot of the debates that you tend to see at, at programming jobs, at you know, software development jobs, are kind of about different people wanting to tackle each project in the way that is what they need to get better. Um, which, uh, I don't know, I suppose it's, it's more of a problem than stealing office supplies in, in a lot of ways. But, uh, yeah. but people do, you know, they want to get better. And that's not, that's not a bad thing as far as, uh, as far as what they're doing for the workplace. No, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. I, no, I've certainly and... done, done my share of it as well. I'm not, I'm not pointing a finger at you. <laughs> no, and, and it's good because, you know, at work, you usually have people with more experience than you when you're starting. And they will call you out on that and be like, um, is this, you know, like simple enough? Is this like over engineering? And you learn by defending your ideas. And sometimes it's like, Oh, I just thought it was cool to implement it this way. <laughs> yep. Uh, that makes a lot of sense. So uh, learning that way, do you feel it prepared you well for a, a job developing software? I mean, I, I guess some of the answer is you were doing the job at the same time. But do you feel like the formal part prepared you well for the, the, the professional part? Yeah, I think I feel like the degree um, and the elective classes that I picked ended up averaging like a third of the content was for comp sci, a third was for management. And uh, let me say, I wrote it down here. There was another third. Um, yeah, and another third was for like information systems, just to understand, uh, understand how th systems work, systemic solutions, like systemic problems, all that stuff. Um, 
I was more passionate about computer science than anything else. I I saw the value on the other things, but I really wanted to go and code on things. Um, to be honest, like now I am appreciating the management part a little bit more. I have been running my own company for the past nine years. So now, now I see the value there. And yes, when, when it comes to, you know, giving feedback and, and trying to, you know, add value to my employees these days, I feel like I am, I have like a solid base to comment and I have my experience as well to comment on things that I see as over-engineered or too optimistic or stuff like that. So to this day, I still see things that, um, or my comments or my opinions are based on th things like, yeah, um, mathematical induction <laughs> like and, and the math mathematical induction sometimes does help you like be like okay yeah this case or this solution works for case zero case one but you know case n it's or case negative n is <laughs> not going to work and i don't think about it that much it's kind of in, ingrained in my brain <laughs> right now but uh i, I can see that a lot of the content that I saw at school helped me, especially the, the comp sci part. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I mean, mathematical induction and figuring out the base case winds up being very much the same thought process as recursion and figuring out, you know, when, when it terminates, you know, when it's, when it's done. Mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so you mentioned mathematical induction and presumably recursion as well, uh, you, you hit them occasionally, you know, you don't, you don't necessarily explicitly think about them that way, but it's, it's definitely something that you hit. Um, other topics we talked about before, you know, before the interview, just to kind of get an idea of what we were going to talk about. We talked a little about discrete mathematics, uh, and we talked a little about programming paradigms. Uh, now, my college didn't have a specific math for computation class. That's some, some, some majors do. It's not uncommon. We took discrete mathematics, you know, the regular class with that name in the math department. So probably mm -hmm. fairly similar to what you did. Tell me about that. Do you find that really useful day to day, month to month in your job? Yeah, I feel like I, I use it on a weekly basis. Um, maybe I don't use every single concept on a weekly basis, but, sure. you know, I, I just found it fascinating at the beginning. Like I, it was week one of mathematical or this discrete mathematics class and teachers or the professors started talking about, you know, logical statements and like, oh yeah, if this and this are true, then this is true. And then sh she started writing all the truth tables for ands and for ors and for thens. And I was like, I have no idea what this is about. Like, this is too fast. I, I had to do like a mind shift at the time and be like, oh, okay, so this are is going to be helpful in the future for conditions. I, you know, like, in the first year of university, I just wanted to like start playing with computers and like writing code and doing things and yada, yada. But, you know, we started with this and I was like, what is like, what is all this gibberish? Like this does not, <laughs> I don't know what you're saying right now. Uh, but yeah, this, the truth tables, you know, like just to see a condition that is composed of more than one statement, like 
yeah, I see that every week at work, like when I review code. Um, Boolean algebra, I think from every class at school, I remember one or two things. Uh, and as I say, maybe I can't explain them right now, but I have them somewhere in my brain and it helps me say, oh, this looks weird or this looks incorrect because if this condition happens, then uh, everything is wrong and you have a bug. Um, so, so yeah, from some discrete mathematics, I think I remember mostly like the conditions and the uh, logic part the most. I'm sure we saw a lot more like groups and sets and all that. And I, you know, like like you, I like to use Ruby and everything. And I see all those things in the Ruby standard library that kind of just solves the problem for you. So you don't really have to implement sets anymore. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's true. Sets are, I, I won't say sets are a solved problem because sets of course mathematically are an enormous topic, but yeah, the ways we use them day to day, mostly there's just, there's already a library for that. Uh, this right. is interesting to me because uh, when I took discrete mathematics, it was actually, it, it didn't cover the things you just mentioned and it covered primarily other things. So. I, just, I guess, a difference in, in what was in the curriculum in, in different places. When you said di discrete mathematics, I immediately thought uh, combinations and permutations and a lot of stuff where you're calculating sizes of things and effectively pro uh, probabilities. Technically, mm -hmm. we weren't doing probabilities, but we were doing things like here's the set of results and here's the set of, you know, possibilities in those results. And so it's it, once you add a division sign, it becomes probabilities. Um, yeah, Which we, we, I, we, I also definitely use, I mean, being able to estimate, you know, sizes and combinations and probabilities and things just, you know, well off the top of my head was useful. But, but yeah, that's, that's interesting. We did um, truth tables and Boolean algebra in, in uh, different, uh, different classes. So that's good to know that that's just a difference in how they say, how they talk about discrete math. Yeah, maybe they didn't cover some of those things because in the, future in the career, I did have a probabil probab uh, ooh, probability class, I want to say, but, um, and we cover all that, you know, normal distributions and, and all that jazz. Um, the other thing that I was, that was very important from the discrete math class was that uh, mathematical induction. In the mm -hmm. final, you had to look at a statement and basically work on the proof for a statement, you know, for the base case and then for the end case. And I'm pretty sure that when I presented that final exam, I had no idea what it was. And I just knew what I needed to write to pass the test. But to this day, I, th I feel like that helps me in my programming. Yeah, there are a lot of things I didn't appreciate properly at the time that I'm glad I got the training in and I've kind of revisited and, and worked them out afterwards. Yeah, that's that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, I'm glad that you're doing this series, uh, this podcast, because I will. it'll be nice to get a refresher and what other people saw and interpreted from concepts they saw in, in school. Yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. You know, there are a few topics that... that I'm hitting a number of times that almost everybody talks about and some, some other rarer ones and both are, are really good from my point of view. You know, it's, it's nice to have the refresher. It's nice to, to think about the things. It's also mm -hmm. interesting to hear the people that think it's worthwhile and the, thing, the, the people that 
think you know all, all, all the various things are worthless. It depends a lot on what you wound up doing professionally afterward, uh, which is also good to hear. You know, good to know. Yeah, uh, I think the information systems engineering program in that university is trying to catch uh, a lot of people, right? So, mm. and I think that's okay. You know, we need project managers, we need QA specialists, uh, we need product managers, uh, we need yeah. analysts. So, a lot of my friends in school didn't end up becoming programmers. They became yeah. project managers or they became analysts or founders, you know, yeah. but yeah, I, I think that's, that's very interesting. What I would be fascinated to hear what other people found interesting from my same program, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I even think just among developers, just among developers, you know, the, the industry is so broad. There are so many different people. Um, my uh, freshman and sophomore year college roommate went off and worked on the rendering program that Pixar uses to make movies. Um, and it would be perfectly reasonable for a fellow in his position to say, how, how could you possibly do programming without extensive higher order calculus? I mean, that's, that's almost mm -hmm. nonsensical. If you don't know about Nyquist limits, how can you sit down and do anything during a, a given day? Um, it, from his point of view, that's true. Uh, I yeah. actually learned a lot of that stuff thinking I might be doing similar things. And at the same time, uh, you, you just don't use it very much in say web programming. You know, it's just a, just a completely different area of, uh, of, of work. And there are a lot of things like that where it's not even just that there are more and less complicated areas, though there are, and more and less mathematical areas, though there are. There are also areas where you use specific bits of math. You know, I've sat down next to people who needed to know calculus and Nyquist limits to, to do things with color and, and uh, visible light. I've sat down next to people who needed to know extensive discrete mathematics to do 13-bit floating point calculations because, you know, it was in weird hardware. Um, yeah, there's just so much variation in what people actually use. Yeah, and and I feel like these you know programs in university have to be generic enough so people can end up doing those things. I did have two full years of calculus one and calculus two at school, and I still don't know how I passed that first calculus one final, but I did, and it just unblocked my career. <laughs> But yeah, there were there were classes that were I was like had to take a final I take a, a four month class on chemistry I'm like information systems engineering taking a chemistry class like what that still doesn't make sense to me but I think it's kind of probably like a bureaucracy thing where oh if you're gonna be an engineer you need to know a little bit about chemistry um, but. Anyway, for calculus one and two, yeah, we did see everything in terms of like integrals and and all that. And yep. I haven't really applied it in, in my career, but I'm sure like people, like you said, like who, who worked in other fields, other more mathematical, uh, mathematically intense fields, I'm sure they, they use it on, on a weekly basis. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, I, again, I've definitely met programmers who, who do that kind of thing. Uh, but again, I knew a lot of, of people doing very mathematically intense stuff. And I, yeah, I don't, I don't know that that's typical, uh, but it exists. It exists. Yeah. Similarly, as far as the why take chemistry, um, not so much the same kind of thing for using it on the job, 
but uh, U.S. universities, at least, a lot of what they claim is that you want a very well-rounded education, that you want people who've been exposed to a little of everything that a, that a random adult <laughs> should know something about. And that was always the excuse for, uh, for things like, oh, uh, classes in English argument and literature and things like that. Uh, they didn't necessarily need a lot of it for an engineering degree, but you, you couldn't get away without a little of it. And the writing classes, to be fair, have been really valuable to me. Um, and mm -hmm. similarly, there's been a little bit of everything. And the ones that haven't been you know, valuable to me necessarily, I assume it's the same idea. Somebody out there has their mind opened by the idea of having to take a little chemistry, I assume, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. I haven't met a person yet, but yeah, uh, <laughs> probably. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. So uh, of the topics we talked about at first, we haven't talked about programming paradigms yet. And I, that seems to mean different things to different people. Tell me a little about what it means to you. Yeah, um, that was one of my favorite classes back in school. It was a four-month four class uh, with then a follow-up elective into design patterns. So I, I really enjoyed it. It was definitely hard because, you know, a paradigm means shifting the way you think about a solution. So in this particular class, we saw uh, object-oriented, functional, and logical paradigms. Um, and for implementing the, the ideas or the theory we were seeing, we would do projects in uh, Smalltalk, uh, Haskell, and Prolog. And... Yeah, I just, that class was amazing because it was like, okay, now we're going to see this paradigm. So everything is an object, uh, objects talk to each other, their messages, polymorphism, all that. And then it's like, okay, well, now we're going to look at functional programming. Uh, everything is a function. Uh, we love recursion. <laughs> and then we started being like, oh, okay, this recursion thing kind of looks like the um, mathematical induction thing that we saw. So they're like closely related. And I found it fascinating. To this day, I still want to go back to Haskell and be like, oh, can I write something in Haskell that I can actually like run in my browser or stuff like that? And I'm sure I can. I'm just like super busy with other things. Um, and then it was like, okay, and this is prologue. And it was like, everything is a rule and everything has like a um, some sort of, or everything is a condition and all the conditions get processed in this order. And that's how you build a program. And I, I thought, uh, yeah, anyway, like <laughs> it was super interesting to, to go from uh, sequential programming or how do you call, oh, I'm really bad with words. Uh, oh, um, and I'm, I'm completely blanking on procedural. Procedural, procedural yeah. <laughs> it, it was interesting to go from the procedural approach to all the other paradigms. Uh, the first programming class we had was we saw Pascal. Mm -hmm. So it, it tells you like how old I am. But anyway, we saw Pascal for the first uh, class where we learned about algorithms and everything was like procedural and like you could like define the algorithm, then implement it in Pascal. And it was very procedural. But then in the paradigms class, it was like, okay, now you're going to have objects and they're going to talk to each other and all that stuff. And I just found it fascinating. And yeah, I think Smalltalk is, is a really interesting language. Uh, wouldn't say I want to use it today, but uh, it, it was very interesting to learn everything about yeah. object-oriented programming. 
it's it's common for folks to uh, to observe that Ruby seems to have pulled a lot from Smalltalk, and I can <laughs> I, I can see the same kind of thing. You don't necessarily want to use Smalltalk, but it's cool to use sort of those features. Uh, in the same way, there are several other things that seem like they were influences to Ruby, where I, I like that influence and I like write, writing Ruby in that style, but I wouldn't necessarily want to go back to to you know where they got it from. Um, yeah. You know, prologue's interesting. That's that's a great example. You know, to me, um, I, I might have summarized it not so much as everything's a rule as uh, everything's a breadth-first search because I'm kind of snarky that way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, you know, pro prologue was the one where it's sort of trying to to find a set of conditions that uh, make what you're saying true. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it was defined as much by what order it tried the possibilities in as as the fact that it was doing that. Um, yeah. But it is kind of brain-bending to use something where instead of having... You suddenly realize that standard function calls are kind of a depth-first search once they tell you, oh, by the way, we're going to use something different for everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that of the paradigms that we saw in that class, that was like the the lighter one. I think it was very, like, I would say like 70% small talk and object-oriented programming to understand, you know, the basic concepts like, polymorphisms uh, uh, and yeah, like message sending and inheritance and composition and all that. And then there was like, oh, and also there's Haskell and there's Prolog with like one or two classes for, for those. Um, and I remember like trying to build something with Prolog and yeah, having a hard time trying to make all the, the rules work the way that they were supposed to work. Yeah. Probably the most complimentary thing I can say about Prolog as far as in practice is that uh, SQL can be considered, like SQL, like the database query language, can be considered to have stolen a lot from it. And it's kind of the same thing turned into uh, into a much easier to use package. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that you say that because then uh, I think we had like a relational algebra class. Mm -hmm. And when we saw SQL, then again, I saw the concepts from <laughs> discrete math applied to, oh, well, this is a SQL query and these are the conditions. And uh, it's kind of like implementing a lot of things, not just like querying and filtering by a condition, but also like grouping by a column and stuff like that. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting, like now, like 14 years after I, I'm done with my, with that, that I can actually connect the dots and be like, oh, wow, all the classes were connected. And I just didn't really see it so clearly back then. Yeah, it's so much of education and, you know, looking back on it, you can see the mental model they were trying to help you build. And it was certainly larger than they could easily quickly describe. And you can see how they were trying to show you all the facets of it. And you were trying to put it back together in your head, sort of like the whole uh, what, what wise men seeing the elephant, or no, blind men seeing the elephant story. Mm -hmm. that makes yeah. Sense? Um, and, uh, and I think with the paradigms, um, as I said, like first we use small talk for object oriented programming. But then when we, uh, when I took the next class, which was the elective class on design patterns, it was, uh, they used Java for that. So that was like the first time I started using Java. And I thought it was really cool to be able to write the code once and 
you know, run it everywhere. Um, I actually was a Java developer before being a, a Ruby developer. Uh, the one thing, sorry to, to be a, a rambling a little, but my brain kind of like works in that way. Uh, the one thing that I missed from the paradigms class is that we didn't really see event-driven programming. You know, like we didn't see JavaScript in my entire career. We didn't see JavaScript. And okay, that was 14 years ago, but it still would have been nice because the first time I started working with JavaScript, I had to ma make that mental shift to be like, oh, everything is an event. So my procedural code is not really running procedurally. It's actually <laughs> running and then returning something and running and returning. And I was like, like I still have a hard time with uh, JavaScript in that sense. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, that's, that, that was interesting about my career. Yeah, that's one of the hard things about having graduated a long time ago. I graduated in 98, um, is that there is a lot that you can look at and say, why didn't they teach me that? And then you check the Wikipedia entry and you say, oh, well, okay, that didn't exist. So that's why they didn't teach me that. Still. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I, you know, I looked at like parsed, parsed expression grammars and, and uh, I went, oh, oh, this is nice. I like this a lot better than the old stack-based stuff they were doing. Why didn't they check the article? Oh, yeah, okay, that's why they didn't explain it. That wasn't a thing then. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah. that's, I suppose that's a good excuse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think the main goal of a paradigms class is to tell you, <laughs> hey, some programming language use a mental model that is different than the other. So, you know, maybe in the future we see, I don't know, quantum language that uses like a different model and at the time you'll you're gonna have to take the a moment a moment to understand how it works and try to get used to the idea that hey everything is an is, everything is an event so everything is going to be returning and everything has a callback and yada yada so i think that's the main part like when you're learning a new programming language to take a moment to say, okay, what paradigm is this using? Is it functional or is it, um, you know, event driven or is it just plain uh, object oriented? Yeah. My experience has been that what you want to do is to, to sort of learn to have a nose for weird stuff. Like when you're looking at a new language, one of the other ways you can approach it is what's the weirdest thing that I see here? What's the most bizarre, unusual thing that I'm seeing happen here? Which isn't necessarily a great way to get a feel for how the language is, is, is typically used. You know, it doesn't necessarily teach you the best way to do it day to day, but it will teach you things you won't necessarily pick up anywhere else. My, I, I hadn't thought about it this way, but my uh, exposure to event-driven programming came from old uh, UI code. Um, if you wrote Windows programs, if you wrote, you know, Mac programs, if mm. you wrote, you know, similar sorts of Linux programs, um, what they would then have said was MVC, although it doesn't look very much like Rails MVC because Rails MVC is, you know, very different from, from where they took that name from, um, was actually very similar, was actually a very similar kind of event driven. Uh, and so if you uh, use, I don't know, these days you'd probably use like GNOME or GTK or KDE or, or Windows or Mac, you know, something along those lines. Um, did, have you done much, you know, sort of graphical programming? Doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be with, you know, windows on the screen or anything, but any kind of, any kind of uh, 
where, where your yeah. controller is being full of graphics? I mean, not that much. I think I when I did it, it was implementing the game of life for a university project using Java and whatever the Java uh, drawing tool was at the time. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah, in terms of like uh, graphical and like processing a lot of events from, from users, I haven't. Even like yeah. to this day, like I don't work a lot with like iOS or Android applications, yeah. which, yeah, receive a lot of user input and have yeah. to be super interactive. Yeah, and so that's, that's where I've got, I got used to that kind of thing is um, there, are, there are some standard patterns. I mean, you usually call it the event loop. Uh, it's just mm -hmm. that in, um, in something where you build your own library, you usually control the event loop. Uh, and so mm -hmm. there's, there's a literal loop that you write, uh, whereas in something like Node.js, usually the event loop control is handed to the system because it wants to make sure that you don't uh, that you don't abuse that too much. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess the, yeah, it is it is a shame they didn't uh, tell you about that one because that definitely existed that long ago. That's that's a much older pattern than JavaScript. Yeah, yeah, I think we did see some. Uh... We we implemented some event-driven logic in one of my uh, university projects. We worked on, well, one of the classes that I had pr a problem with was this distributed system class that mm. we had to build a distributed system application in C. And as I said, pick your teams well because they can make you take, anyway, they can c cause problems in the long run. But um, in this particular projects, we were work, working on a kind of like a Napster situation where you could, anybody could, you know, run your application and download things from your computer. Um, that's a project that uh, I failed with. And so the next project we worked on was a distributed Pac-Man. <laughs> And it was interesting. I got to learn from a lot about C, a lot about networking, a lot about like communication between two different nodes in a in a distributed system. And I, I love that project. To this day, I think about like the dynamic that I had with my teammate. It was just the two of us working from the beginning to the end of the project and we shipped it on time and it passed the final review. Uh, but at the time, I did get to learn about select in C, which is this, oh, how can I explain it? It's basically a mechanism in C that gets a connection and then, or at least in this, in this program, it got a connection and then, and then it launched a thread. So it got a connection, launched a thread, and so on and so forth. And that would happen sometimes when you could you could get a player from one Pac-Man board to your Pac-Man board. And then it would be like, hey, I'm entering your Pac-Man board. <laughs> and then you had to deal with that and not only, you know, draw draw the, the player playing in your screen, but also send back the screen to the other player yep. who is who knows where. Um, but anyway, in terms of events, that was like my first introduction to events and it was, Certainly nothing like JavaScript, but uh, it, w it was definitely interesting to work with distributed systems and, and events at the time. Um, I remember very clearly 
one time we had a problem where the screen was lagging and you know we were getting like way too many uh information from the other player remotely and they were seeing a lag and i was like what's going on um and it seemed like we were sending things between two different notes too fast without acknowledging that a, a, a message was processed. So there was <laughs> the speed that we're sending things were, was too fast. So the person who was receiving the messages was taking a long time, a longer time to process the messages and to display the screen. So then there was a lag there. I was like, I was writing the subway and I was like, oh, of course we need to wait for the acknowledge message before we start flooding the <laughs> the other node with information so that they can process display it process display it, and all that so anyway that 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 was my interaction to events in a, in a way but uh yeah we never learned javascript in, in my in my uh college yeah the kind of the way it's packaged the api that, that javascript and its relatives put on that is is definitely a separate thing from just having things happen that makes a lot of sense yeah and flow control uh, what you're talking about with the acknowledgements that makes sense to me uh, we took a class when i was in college basically we implemented a little tcp stack so like the the, the whole business of you know actually yeah. sending the packets and dividing it up and all of that and it's a similar set of problems it's there's all kinds of, uh, of stuff in tcp to keep from you know flooding the other end and uh, to keep things going at about the right speed and what happens when things change and yeah that's that is a really complicated problem when you uh, when you do more and more of it yeah yeah it, it was definitely fascinating and to learn uh about that project and Yes, the project specification was like, oh, here, here are the packages, you know, like this is what the package is going to look like. And they never told you like, oh, you're going to have trouble <laughs> communicating between two nodes because uh, they can't both process the information at the same speed and you need to s implement some sort of like synchronization mechanism to make sure that you're not talking too loudly to the other node so that they, they just get overwhelmed by your messages. Yep. Yeah, distributed systems are legendary for being hard, partly for reasons a lot like that. Yeah, and I feel like that particular class was uh, a great class for testing you and for showing you like, oh, you, you like programming or you hate programming. You're and that's okay. You know, like you, you, if you're studying information systems engineering, you don't have to be a coder programmer. You can be something else. Um, but at the beginning of the class, it would have been nice to define a team that knew what the roles were going to be. And I think like yeah. the assumption from the beginning was like, Oh, everything's, everybody's going to be coding on this project. And that's a terrible idea because we were, you know, in our 20s, 20, 20, 21, who knows, and we we're just getting started with programming and to get a team of four or five people writing distributed code for this project. Now that I think about it, it was a terrible idea, <laughs> but we did it anyway. We're like, okay, yeah, we're gonna, you know, split the load between the five of us. And that did not work well the first time around. The second time around, it was like, oh, okay, cool. You're going to work on the business, the, the game rules, and I'm going to work in the network networking section. And we kind of divided in layers like that. 
Yeah. And it was like much easier to work like that with, with another programmer. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. I mean, it sort of seems almost like poetic justice on a distributed systems project. <laughs> how, how hard is distributed systems? Well, let's put five people together without a defined communication protocol and you can work it out. <laughs> oh. Yes. But I, I, that doesn't kind of help you on that one. No, I, I, was, I was lucky. We had some group projects uh, where I went to school, but I think we did one project voluntarily with four people because we did something larger than the than the base required for the class but in general most of the class projects were either one person or two people and that was mm -hmm. that was easier at least you know like operating systems was one of our big project classes and those were all two-person projects yeah and i gotta say yeah it's it's a learning yeah opportunity to be like okay this is what programming is like it's not just writing code it's communicating with your with your buddy, you know, that's why things like, you know, daily calls are genius because we forget sometimes that we're doing a social uh, activity. Like you're not, if you're working on a project with more than one developer, you're, you need to talk, you need to figure out where you're going. You need to talk about the problems and I love daily calls for that. They definitely helped us a lot in our company right now to figure out, you know, to, to communicate better because Slack is okay, you know, for communicating. Um, but you really need to talk when you're working on the same code to make sure that you're making forward progress and you're not undoing something that your teammate did because you just don't really, you're not on the same page about the problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's kind of kind of ironic, you know, from my point of view, that when I was uh, in university and then early in my career, uh, I worked on much larger projects. You know, I was I was working in C. I was working on operating systems. You know, it was often. I mean, a school project, yeah, was was sure like two to four people, but then a real project, it was common for teams to be eight or 10, and it was common for the larger team that you were part of to be 60 or 80 or 100 or more. Um, I mean, Palm was a small operating systems company. I'm sure the Microsoft people from the, the that era would be laughing at me right now. A hundred people, <laughs> you can't do anything with a hundred people. Um, but... Um, but we also had a lot less idea about those communication problems. You know, these days we're a lot more sophisticated about the communication and we have much smaller teams of people doing, you know, things that we have a, a much, much better idea about. It's just kind of gotten better in every way. Yeah. No, and, and I think there is a lot of value in small teams. Like e even if, you know, like you're saying like eight, 10, I think like that's still like too, too big. Uh, I'm a big, uh, you know, advocate for small teams. Uh, we usually put like two or three people on a, in a project. And uh, of course, like we're not working on huge project right, right now, but uh, I really like to work with like two or three people. And I think when I look back and I, I look at that team that was successful, it was like my buddy and I working on this code and I would just be on his on the phone most of the time you know, there was no Slack. There was probably like IRC was the best we had back then. Uh, but we, we would just be on the phone. I'd be like, oh, hey, I figured out how to figure to solve this uh, latency problem or this like lag problem uh, because we're not acknowledging da, da, da. And we would be on the phone all the time. So it was, 
it's amazing when I learned about the Agile Manifesto to be like, oh, that's, um, and, and and then like not not that it is in the Agile Manifesto, but like to to favor like communication and like daily communication and like daily calls. Yeah, things like pairing. Like, things like yeah. pairing are a lot like what you're talking about. Yeah, and like pair programming uh, are great. And I'm glad that someone took the time to to be like, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to waterfall anymore. We're going to do things a different way. And a lot of other, you know, systems came up from the Agile Manifesto. So I'm, I'm glad for that. Yeah, there was, there was clearly some good there. Um, I mean, there's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of doubt about how it played out in practice, but that's how everything works, right? Even, even the best ideas tend to get a fan club. We all sort of wish they didn't. Yeah, I think my take on Agile is that you can't religiously follow any processes. Every project deserves its own model. And sometimes you need Kanban, sometimes you need Scrum. It depends on the project and depends on the team. And you got to do what works for you. And sometimes it's a mix of, of all the, the models that are out there. That makes a lot of sense. And that's kind of like what we talked about with paradigms. That's a time when it's, it's good if you know a lot of different ones because it gives you a much better ability to, to combine the principles. Yeah, it's easy to feel like, you know, if somebody just did enough of them, they'd be able to write down the principles in a sensible way. But I suspect it would work like Sandy Metz, you know, who's, who's kind of done that for OO. On the one hand, yes, by her having enormously broad experience, she can come back and write down these really useful, interesting principles for the rest of us. And on the other hand, they turn out not to be really trivial principles. And so it still takes a huge amount of study. Yeah, no, and I, I love Sandy and the work that she's done and her talks. Like, I'm, I'm a big fan. Um, so it's it's nice to get uh, principles. I think it starts to get um, weird when you talk about implementations. Uh, so it's it's very uh, interesting to to look at the principles and to try to apply them to your uh, projects. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, it's all, all the problems we're familiar with. It's, you know, a lot of this you can only solve with experience and you can, you can try to make the early learning better, but in the end, it's still the early learning and you still get better by, by doing a wide variety of stuff and learning it for yourself always, which makes sense. Yeah. yeah, I think one of the main problems we have, and I see this over and over again in my teams, is that we want to jump to solution building before we understand the problem. Yeah. So if, you know, if your listeners take one thing away from this, I hope that it is that, that first you need to truly understand the problem before you define like what paradigm you're going to use, what solution you're going to implement, what architecture you're going to build. Um, so I know that us programmers love to write code, but sometimes you just need to like sit down listen and try to understand what the problem really is um, and what the, the stakeholders really need, not what your solution needs to be. Um, yeah, sometimes you'll need object-oriented programming, uh, but sometimes you'll need, I don't know, React Native and, and event-driven uh, architecture. That makes a lot of sense. So what do you do to improve your uh, your your ability to write software these days? 
Um, I have been participating a lot on open source projects. Uh, sure enough, uh, most of the open source projects that I participate in, I create them and publish them. Um, so I feel like I've learned so much from open source and I wouldn't be where I am today if it wasn't thanks to open source. Like, you know, I use Ruby, I use Rails, I use Linux, all of them are open source. I don't understand their source code that well, but I try to contribute back as much as possible. And I try to encourage my employees to do the same. Um, you know, some are more inclined to contribute back to open source projects and some are not. I think it takes years of experience to feel comfortable uh, contributing back to a project. Uh, my goal with my company is to reduce that time, you know, to make it so that it doesn't take you 10 years like it took me to start contributing back. If I can make it so it takes you one or two years to start getting used to the idea that your contributions are valuable, that you can follow a process that doesn't add noise to an open source project, but it actually adds value, uh, then I feel like I'm, I'm doing my job as, as a CTO as, at my company. Um, and we recently took an approach that was to be open by def default. So we usually ask ourselves this question, like, is this project really does it really need to be closed source or can we open source it? And there's usually not that many good reasons to close source a project. So we're usually open sourcing as much as possible at work. Um, I try to keep up with some of the news, um, mostly with Ruby, I think. I, I follow... Um, I follow a lot of people on Twitter. So I usually get my news from Twitter and I see what's going on there. I gotta admit that I don't read every article that I find interesting. I usually just skim it and see what they're trying to say. And I try to understand that, but yeah, I don't read every single article that is out there. Uh, and I try to go to, yeah, you, you can't, right? Yeah, there are just so many articles out there. Um, and pre-COVID, I try to go to conferences often. Um, and to be honest, the, the most interesting interactions I've had uh, have, have been like just talking to people, having lunch with them at conferences. I appreciate the talks, uh, but I usually prefer to just hang out with people and get to know other people than to go and listen to the talks. That makes a lot of sense. No, the, the, you know, the longer I'm in the industry, the more the whole way track appeals to me. I, I feel the, kind of the same way. Uh, I will mm -hmm. say, as far as having trouble with the Ruby source code base specifically, um, there's a wonderful book by Pat Shaughnessy called Ruby Under a Microscope. And if you mm -hmm. or anybody else is looking to potentially contribute to Ruby, mm -hmm. um, it's a really good explanation of how a lot of the fundamentals of the interpreter work. I mean, I'm, there's probably similar things for a lot of uh, for a lot of things, but for Ruby, there's a really good book, and it's still oh, basically cool. accurate. Uh, it's not fully up to date. There are some things that aren't in it, but what it talks about is still basically that way. Cool. 
I have to admit though, like I have been writing software for 15 years yeah. and I still find it scary to contribute back to big projects like Ruby or Rails. Um, most of the time I'm like, oh, this would be cool. You know, like it would be awesome if Rails uh, statistics, you know, the command that you can run to get statistics about a Rails application. It would be awesome if that was better, you know, that was like had more information. Sure. But then I look into, I do my research, I search for issues and I see the conversations that have happened in the past. And I'm like, oh, okay, it seems like the team is not really that open to getting improvements for this component because there have been conversations about that in the past. So most of the time I do my research well, first I have an idea, then I do my research and I end up not doing anything. I'm like, okay, I did my research and I find an excuse to not submit an issue, not submit a query to the user group. Uh, so yeah, I'm still struggling with that to contribute back and to f submit ideas to these big projects because um, they're scary, you know, and I, and I can't imagine now like how scary it can be for like a junior developer who's like, Oh, the rails is really cool. It would be awesome if it had X. Yeah. And I can't imagine that can be scary. It's a little like the fear of public speaking. It's kind of a fear of putting yourself out there. And uh, I mean, I suppose anybody can turn around and say, Oh, that's not a real thing. And what are they going to do? Bite you over the internet. But Anything that, that almost everybody is universally terrified of, there's probably something to it. And we probably don't get to just say, oh, don't be scared of that and, and call it a day. Right. Yeah, I think my approach these days is to submit a question and figure out whether there is interest in something before yeah. I go on and uh, submit an issue or submit a pull request. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So... Pretend for a moment that people have listened this far and they love it. Everybody loves what you have to say. This gets massively popular. If this were a Twitter thread, it just went viral. You're posting your SoundCloud. What's your SoundCloud? Where, where, do, where would you like people to go next? Yeah, I think it would be great if they just uh, follow me on Twitter. Uh, my username is etacworker. Uh, you will find uh, political content and you'll find some technical content. It's hard not to be political these days, um, especially with the way things are in the US. Um, it's hard to be silent when there's so much going on. So you will see some political content there and some uh, technical content as well. Excellent. That makes a lot of sense. So you know you much better than, you, than I know you, of course, you know. On this topic about, you know, the formal education and informal education and the way we learn to be software developers and how that translates into using it on the job, what should I have asked you specifically? What's a question you should be asked that I haven't managed to ask yet? Uh, that's a good one, Noah. Um, I think the elephant in the room is whether people need to have a formal education to be good programmers or be good in uh, software projects. And I have a clear answer for that. I feel like 
it's great if you have the time and you can go to college and study computer science. I see there's a lot of value there. I'm not saying don't do it. But what I'm saying is that you don't need it to be a good programmer or to be valuable in a software project. I've met a lot of people that are self-taught. They're just like very good at programming and they never went to college or maybe they went to college and studied something else, but then they found an interest in software and computers and they started learning by themselves. And I've done that a lot. Like I've learned a lot from my contributions to open source projects. I've learned a lot from other teammates and, and people with more experience than me. So if you look at my knowledge in, in my head, you can see like an iceberg, right? And maybe like the tip of the iceberg or the maybe like the, the very bottom of the iceberg is comes from college. Like some concepts I got from college and they were great. They were like uh, a good base. But a lot of the, the iceberg, I would say it's like 90% of the iceberg is coming from somewhere else. It's coming from books that I read, coming from web page, from blogs, from other people, from Twitter, um, from just being hungry for knowledge. So if you're looking to get into programming, I would say like that's the key feature or the key thing you need, hunger for knowledge, for growth. Like if you're not learning something every week, even with years of experience, I feel like you're wasting your time. So keep that in mind. You don't need to go to college to be a good programmer. That makes a lot of sense. Excellent. Well, uh, this has been Noah Gibbs with Computer Science, Just the Useful Bits. I've been privileged to speak with Ernesto Tagwerker here. Uh, Ernesto, it's been wonderful having you. Thank you very much, Noah, and I hope to catch up with you soon.